This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Omari Averett Phillips, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Catherine Mooney about her new book, Isaac Murphy, The Rise and Fall of a Black Jockey. Dr. Catherine Mooney, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And so, Dr. Mooney, I wonder if you could just begin the interview by telling us just a bit about yourself. I'm associate professor of U.S. history at Florida State University, and my work basically focuses on sort of the ways inequality worked, particularly in 19th century America and increasingly in the second half of 19th century America, uh, as you can sort of see from this book, and sort of the way the law changes, but also the way that people experience how law changes and how people sort of understand how to live in a world that's legally unequal and politically unequal and how they come to understand that as sort of a way that the world works and whether they understand that as, you know, yeah, good, this is how the world should work or whether they understand it as fundamentally wrong and how culture sort of helps them come to those understandings and, either try to shore up the way the world is or to change it. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. And I feel like this time period is sort of rife for that sort of study. Uh, so for this particular project, how did, how did you come to this project? My first book, um, actually, um, if anybody out there is interested in, you know, getting an advanced degree in history, doing a dissertation, I'm sure some of you out there have thought about that or have, are like, oh man, been there, done that. Whoa. Not my favorite time in life. Uh, I, uh, I was in a, a graduate program in history and I was supposed to be starting to do a dissertation and it was the end of my first year. And I was interested primarily in slavery and its legacies and emancipation and the consequences of emancipation. And I was increasingly interested, I think, in the idea of sort of the the coupling and the decoupling of freedom and equality and how those things were fundamentally understood as different in 19th century America in a way that is, I think, harder for us to decouple now. And you know, certainly when I teach, like that's one of the major points I'm trying to get across. Like, guys, this was not the way people then thought. And, you know, I was sort of trying to figure out how that was all going to go into a project and I didn't know. And uh, I came on this narrative that was written by a, uh, is it in 1884, is by a formerly enslaved man uh, named Charles Stewart. And it was about his career as an enslaved horseman. And I had grown up a horse person, and I, so I was super into it. And I did not think of it as a dissertation. I was just like, oh, wow, this is an intersection of two things I'm fascinated by. This is so cool. And then um, it was actually embedded in this book by a journalist named Edward Hotelling, which is called The Great Black Jockeys, which is a great book. Everybody should check it out. 
Uh, and, you know, he was a journalist. He'd done great work. And there were several times in the book where he would be like, man, you know, I wish we knew more about this. You know, maybe there's more to find out. And my little junior historian skills were like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be trained to do this. Maybe I could, you know, maybe I could do this. And once I started looking, I discovered that black horsemen are everywhere in 19th century America. And also, I really came to appreciate, I think, something that I had sort of known, but like not processed, which was how important horse racing was in 19th century America. And like all the energy that now goes into all the professional sports is in that space. And so like all of the fan culture and all of the, you know, media attention and all of that is on that, is on that one, one sport and enslaved men and free black men are the men who were doing the work in a lot of that space. And they are actually celebrities and to me, that was like, oh, wait. So the way a lot of people in America understood what slavery was and what it meant to be black is sort of processed through these very early black celebrities. So I'm fascinated by that. I write my first book, which is sort of a, a whole, you know, that goes from like, 18, you know, the founding to like 1920. And we can talk about what happened in the 20s to black jockeys, which was not a happy story. But... Then, you know, I continued on and, you know, um, then Yale University Press, which is in the process of putting together this Black Lives series, which is the idea is that these are these short biographies of African-Americans who have and people of African descent all over the world who have affected the world they've lived in in some profound way. And some people are, you know, super famous. You probably already heard of them. And some people were not. And. I don't know, but I think they were kind of interested in the idea of having an athlete because they had a lot of people from like, you know, cultural, political fields. And so they wanted, you know, some this this person from this extra um, sort of walk of life. And I don't know how they came up with Isaac Murphy, but maybe it was because they read my book, I hope, um, because one chapter in my book had been about Isaac Murphy, who was probably the most famous jockey in American history to, you know, like relatively late in the 20th century. Um, and they said, well, do you want to do this? And I said, sure. You know, uh, and in part that was because if you're going to write about African-American jockeys, you got to write about Murphy. Cause he's sort he's the most famous one. Um, but also by then I had started teaching full time. And the thing that really grabbed me about Murphy even before I started, but then, you know, much more once I taught. Murphy's born enslaved in 1861 in Kentucky. So he's four at the time of the 13th Amendment, which matters because Kentucky is not a Confederate state. So the Emancipation Proclamation doesn't count in Kentucky, so it has to, slavery doesn't end until the 13th Amendment is passed. And so he's enslaved until he's four years old. His father serves in the Union Army and dies uh, and his mother, who I'm sure we'll talk about a lot, is, you know, majorly involved in, in figuring out sort of how she can navigate freedom and all these new sort of government initiatives to make a life for herself. He becomes spectacularly famous, one of the most famous black men in America. He's probably, you know, sort of this, he's certainly one of the first black celebrities. You know, there's all this stuff going on that's really important for later. And he dies two months before the Plessy versus Ferguson decision. So as somebody who's like, who's always been interested in 
how does slavery fundamentally affect the United States? And how did the debates after it about what exactly freedom is and what equality is in real life? Like, this is a man whose life embodies all those questions. So I was just, I was ready to go. So it's, it's been a really, really fascinating experience, not only to sort of get to know him better, but also to think about how much his life embodies if you're interested in those questions and that time in American history. And so you touched upon it a little bit there, but I wonder if you could just expand a little bit. What role did horse racing play in the antebellum South? So it's a big national sport, but sometime in the 1830s, it gets less popular in the North. And there's a lot of, you know, inside baseball here about various kinds of horse racing that if you're super into, there are lots of places you can look this up. Um, but, uh, Basically, Northerners start doing sort of different things in the 1830s. They're still doing horse racing, but they're doing other kinds more. And so like horses that uh, race in harness, that kind of thing. And so the the really like megabucks, um, you know, very, very, um, you know, most glitzy sort of um, thoroughbred horse racing is done in the antebellum South before 1860. And this is not shocking, but you know, the people who do the work with horses are usually working class and rural people. And in the North, that means, you know, usually poor white people in the late 19th century, it's going to mean a lot of immigrant kids. And I say kids advisedly because, you know, people leave school, they get jobs as teenagers and then, you know, um, and in the South, that's enslaved men. And again, men, right? This is a male space, basically. Um, And so, you have this really weird dualistic thing going on in the antebellum South where black men are enslaved, but they're enslaved in this very highly skilled form of bondage where they're doing this work that is really culturally important and they can be very famous for doing it. And people you know, their, their names are sort of nationally known. They're the first sports celebrities. You know, they're not, I don't, I, I'm a historian. I don't like having the conversation about who is the first, you know, cause I'm always like, Oh no, I don't, don't pin me down. Um, so I'm not saying they're the absolute first, right. That's actually one of the reasons I have the subtitle I have. Cause the press was like, he was the first, we want to say he's the first. And I was like, no, no, <laughs> I can't do it. Stop. Um, but you know, they're certainly like, as Americans are sort of figuring out, like, who's a celebrity in sports in the mass communication age? These are the guys that they're that they're looking at, right? And, and they're enslaved. And then immediately after the war, they're people who have been slaves, and who are now free, and who are sort of figuring out, like, I have all this cultural power now that I didn't have before. And I think the major things that happens to those men is that one of the ways that their celebrity is sort of built into slavery and, and sort of channeled so it's not a threat to the existence of slavery, right? So that nobody says, wait a minute, these people are incredibly skilled, incredibly knowledgeable people, and you're deferring to their opinion. Why on earth do you think it's appropriate for them to be treated as, as property? And I think the answer that's sort of given to that implicitly is this fundamental cognitive dissonance which is like, well, but this proves that this system is great. 
because we're getting all this benefit out of it. This is how the world is supposed to work because look at this. This is, look at the results, right? Don't argue with the results. And in sort of day-to-day terms, I think the way that's, that's made to work is to make it clear to these men, like you're very famous. People know who you are and know we can't perhaps punish you in a way that we would punish somebody else because your skill and your knowledge is not interchangeable with somebody else's, right? It matters if you can't do your job. It matters if you die, but we can make your life really difficult. And because we've made your life more bearable, right? A lot of these men are allowed to keep their families with them. A lot of these men are allowed travel flexibility. I mean, just things that, that make your life more bearable in a, in a, in a great and, and horrible, you know, existence to say, well, what if we took that away? Right. And it's, and it's what the slavery historian Walter Johnson calls the autoimmune disease model where they say, well, you know, here's something that heals you, but what if we turn it into a weapon against you? And that's what's done to those men. And what happens after freedom is all of a sudden that's gone. And it's like, what happens when you can use all your power, not just for yourself, but for your family and for your community? What happens when you can try to build generational wealth? What happens when you can send your kids to school? And looking at those, looking at those families has been one of my favorite parts of this, of these, you know, sort of combined projects, because what you immediately see is, you know, men who make their livings on the racetrack, who are sold as children in slave markets, their children graduate from college. They become doctors and journalists and civil rights activists and lawyers. And that was clearly what they, you know, to them, the racetrack is the place that gave them the sort of launching pad to say, okay, this is not necessarily what I want for my kids, but this is a place that gave me the skills that I could use to give these things to my kids and my family. And so you, you write early in the book that uh, telling Murphy's story is particularly challenging because he left us no personal papers and only a few interviews. So how did you set about telling the story of a figure that's so historically elusive? It was really hard. And it was also, so one of the things that I had figured out even before I read the book, even before I wrote the book, when I was just writing the, the chapter about Murphy in my first book, is that not just because of the source problem, though the source problem was big, but because of sort of his status, that the first thing you sort of encounter when you look into Isaac Murphy is you realize that you're never, well, maybe not never, I hope not never, um, you were often looking in a mirror, right? You're not looking at him. You're looking at what you want to see. You're looking at him refracted. And that when you try to sort of dig into who he is, you're going through all these refractions. And so you're, I mean, and so part of what I did was say, okay, maybe theoretically, if you look at all these sort of different pictures of him and you sort of, judge them against each other. Right. And you, and you look at the discrepancies between them, maybe you can figure this out. Um, but I think as anybody who's interested in African-American studies and in, in the, you know, and in the notion of African-American celebrity is, is going to find, you know, so easy to believe, right. This is a man who is 
always being looked at because he's always sort of representing for America what blackness is. And so that's, you know, that's why it's so difficult. And so the, the, one of the sort of methodological things I did was say, okay, well, the first thing I can do is admit that there's just access to his inner life that I don't have. Um, but it seems important to explain that what I am doing is saying, okay, I'm judging by all these sort of external things. And part of the story I'm telling you is about that this happened to him, right? And that that you don't understand his life unless you understand that this is a man who is constantly being looked at. And so what I'm here to tell you is about what these people see and to sort of judge maybe what the consequences are to somebody who lives under that kind of, of strain. And it was really important to me to do that because I think you also get a sense that one of the reasons he doesn't leave any papers is first of all, obviously, because um, he has, he doesn't have children, right? They're, they're just very basic family reasons why it doesn't happen. Obviously there's also the long-term archival problem of papers belonging to African-Americans at all that, you know, they're not being saved, et cetera. Um, But also this is, this is a very introverted man. And I don't know if he was introverted because he had a very difficult life. He had a very difficult uh, childhood. Um, he was shy naturally. I, I, or if, if he just figured that dealing with racism was such that he didn't, you know, it, what he felt and thought was his business. And, you know, he wasn't going to show private things to people in public. And, and so as somebody, and, and again, sort of as, as yet another white person sort of prying into his life, I sort of thought, well, what is my moral responsibility here, right? Is it, I always want to make sure that I'm not a sort of a voyeur in a way, you know, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm, I want to, I want to give the man his dignity because um, he's a profoundly dignified person and, and he deserves that. So, so, you know, for instance, you know, you could, you could get into why he and his wife have no children, right? You could speculate about that. That's not my business, you know? Um, and I mean, I can say they didn't have any children. It seems, you know, likely they were together a lot. It seems likely that, um, you know, somebody probably had some sort of reproductive difficulty, but you know, I, I, it seems very irresponsible to speculate further, though people frequently have, have asked me to do so. Um, and so what I did was just say, okay, this is what I have. Um, and thank goodness for, uh, you know, I mean, for, for both for good and ill, right? Thank goodness for mass newspaper databases, um, because uh, there's stuff that's digitized now that's highly searchable that would not have been searchable not that long ago. So uh, there are a couple of interviews he gave that were crucial to the book that were not, you know, that people really kind of didn't know about um, because they just hadn't been readily available. Um, and then, you know, so I, I found as much as I could, you know, to sort of point me in that direction. And then I sort of tried to, to do some reading between the lines. Um, so for instance, this, this is a guy who talks all the time about how physically exhausting his job is. And, uh, you know, and we can get into that a little bit more because it was, I mean, it was, this is a man who probably is meant to weigh about 140 pounds. That's what he weighed when he wasn't at work. 
um, about four months of the year, but eight months of the year to work, he has to weigh between 105 and 110. And he has no, you know, what we would now, you know, nutrition science, exercise science, there's no sort of support like that that would help a modern day athlete. Um, and so he's yo-yoing back and forth. Um, he's sometimes losing weight in these sort of cataclysmic, horrific, you know, 24, 36 hour, you know, losing 12 or 13 pounds. You know, I mean, just horrific, doing horrific stuff to his body. He talks about this all the time. He never talks about what it's like to be sort of constantly scrutinized, both by white people who are sort of constantly looking to him as, you know, sort of the sign of what black success is and isn't that great because he's a successful black person who looks the way we want it to look or gosh, he's a successful black person. We find successful black people kind of scary. You know, what do we do with that? And also at the same time to be looked at by African-Americans who are looking at this point for all sorts of people to sort of establish that black people are worthy of rights, right? These debates about, you know, uh, should, should rights be accorded to those who are worthy or are rights an inherent thing to be gifted to all Americans? You know, th- he's caught up in all this, but not by choice. And he never talks about that. But at some point I realized, you know, he talks all the time about how tired he is. Some of that has to be about constant scrutiny whether he recognizes it or not, you know, I mean, and I'm, I'm not saying he didn't, I'm just saying, you know, sometimes psychological stuff like that is hard to talk, you know, even articulate to yourself in, in your head. Um, and so to think about, to try to sort of get at that through what he's not telling you. And at the same time, at least to try to faithfully depict what it's like to be that kind of object of scrutiny and to sort of try to help people think about how long famous African-Americans have, have borne that burden and to how important that's been in the politics of the United States. And so let's, let's get into some of the, the book itself, right? So um, what can you tell us about Murphy's parents, particularly his mother and sort of his childhood as well? So we're very lucky. Um, his mother bless her, uh, believed very firmly that the United States in its sort of new incarnation, right? Post, post 13th amendment, the United States was going to take her seriously as a citizen. And that meant they were going to put her on paper. And so she is for a woman who was in her early twenties, who had grown up enslaved, um, she is everywhere in, in all these records in the late 1860s and early 1870s. Um, and to me, that argues a great degree of savvy and, you know, just constant alertness to saying, okay, what is changing in this incredibly complex period? You know, how, how can I make this work? So we know basically all the details we have of his early life from the account she gave to the pension office. Uh, when she was collecting her survivor's pension for her husband. So what we know is that both she and uh, her name, by the way, is America, which was a name that um, other black women in uh, in that part of Kentucky had. Uh, I think it's amazing. Uh, I didn't I didn't belabor it in the book because I was just like, here, just going to 
just going to give this to you. Let's think about it. Um, but uh, her name was America Murphy. And she was born in Lexington. Uh, and as far as we can tell, she was sold at some point, you know, we don't know when, to a farmer outside of town in one of the sort of adjoining farm counties. And she must have at some point gone to a different rural community also around Lexington, uh, which was in uh, Bourbon County. And that's where she must have met her husband, uh, Jerry Burns. And Jerry's a bit older than she is. Um, And he's, as far as we know, and this is one of these things that comes up in the, in the pension records, he's already married, but again, this is, you know, and this has been such a a difficult story to unearth because we don't have any, I mean, these, these are literally the facts we have. This is all we've got. And people have done a lot with this, right. To be like, Oh, you know, or to say, Oh, you know, no, that didn't happen. Or, Oh no, they have this great love story or who knows. Right. We have no idea. Um, And I mean, what we can know is that it's certainly not uncommon to be in a situation, uh, particularly because, uh, you know, slavery does not allow for legal marriage. And everybody knows that a marriage could end with a sale. Um, You know, a family could be taken away. Right. So it's, it's not unusual for people to have multiple partners even partners that might overlap slightly chronologically, especially if she is, you know, America, I think was probably in, in Bourbon County temporarily because she's, you know, I mean, so she may have been hired there, you know, we just don't know. So I was very resistant to, to sort of making any speculation about what his father was, was like as a person, because I, I, I have no idea. Um, We just don't know, but they, uh, they get married. And about, uh, you know, several months later, um, Isaac's born and he's also born in Bourbon County. Uh, his mother's sister is there. So clearly his mother has this sort of very close knit family and she's very fortunate to be able to have that. I'm not quite sure how that worked, but I mean, that's, it's a fairly small community, even the rural community sort of around town. So, um, and in, 1864, his father joins the Union Army, which at that point is is something that black men in Kentucky can do. And it's also a way to secure freedom for your family. That may have been something that he was thinking about. And he may have been thinking not just about, about Isaac in America, but about, you know, if he did have this other family. And as far as we know, he did because his other family also applies for his pension many years later. And he has four children in that family. Um, he may have been thinking about them as well. I don't know. Um, and he joins the Union Army and almost immediately gets sick. Um, and the you know great untold story of the Civil War is how many people die of communicable disease, which he clearly did. He had some he, he probably had dysentery or some kind of as far as we can tell, he had some kind of you know very common and and very sad uh, camp ailment. And clearly America's not there. Right. I mean, and she, and, and I, I didn't speculate about this a lot, but it must've been terrifying, right? Your, your husband 
goes into the army and he's still local. He's south of town. So she may have seen him at some point, but it doesn't. She was clearly not there when he died. She may not have known what was going on. You know, she has this very, very difficult situation. And then at some point she moves to Lexington uh, in the late 1860s, which is a time when all kinds of black people all over the South are moving to towns because there's usually a little more chance of say federal authority, legal authority that prevents violence. And particularly for the widow of a member of um, the union army, that may have been very important because that was, you know, widows were being attacked all over the South in various places. Um, And also because it was a place where black children uh, were able to go to school because it's more likely that their, their schools open to black children in cities. And so she comes to Lexington. She opens a laundry business, which again, a lot of black women are doing because it allows, well, basically it lets her work from home. Right. And she has a child to take care of. She can control her own labor. It is hideously difficult work. Uh, being doing 19th century laundry is, is incredibly uh, wretched, but you know, it does give her her own business and she takes that money and the pension money and she buys a house and she and her son and her siblings live in that house. Um, and she's banking with the new, uh, chapter of the Freedmen's bank, which is a federal institution that's supposed to help formerly enslaved people, you know, collect some form of generational wealth and capital. She's doing that. Uh, it is horrifically betrayed by the federal government, not that many years later. Um, but at that time, you know, it is one of the great markers of freedom. And, you know, I think, I don't, I don't, one of the things I, I think about when, and, and had thought about, you know, before I even wrote the book. And one of the reasons I really wanted to, to tell the story of his early life the way I did, people have really, you know, to, to the degree that people have talked about Isaac Murphy, they love his daddy. Right. And, and I totally get it. Right. It's a great story. Right. Here's this man who's fighting for the freedom of his people and his son grows up and is one of the great, you know, sort of athletic and cultural heroes of 19th century America. This is a great story of the end of slavery and, and what's possible. Totally get it. You know, 100 percent. But the thing that that kept coming back to me and the thing that you know, talking to women in the community in Lexington who have, who have sort of tried to find out about her and, and think about her story is, you know, that's, that's not the way his life really worked. Like, I, I don't know how well he knew his daddy, but he was very little when his daddy died. And his mother is the one who takes him to town. She gets him to school. He is in school, right? He gets an education. She is the one who gets him a house to grow up in. She is the one who gives him a family structure, right? She is the one who gives him security. And in the end, she's the one who sort of taps her friend network. And she's friends with this lady whose husband is a horse trainer and has been a horse trainer for a very long time, had had been enslaved and, and a very prominent horse trainer. And she gets him this job. And I think she... She gets him the job at the track because she's convinced by older black men that this is a place where he can have a secure future because these are black men who are 
drawing on this multi-generational sort of idea of black men pa- passing on expertise to other black men and in this space saying, hey, but now the, you know, now slavery is at an end and we're trying to figure out maybe how that could translate to, right, uh, the strength and, and, and security for the community and, and maybe your son can be part of this. And I think she, that's exactly the kind of thing that, that she would have wanted for him, right? And the the trajectory of his story is that, you know, when he's about 13 or 14, he's able to, you know, he leaves school and he's now traveling full time as a professional horseman. He's, he's under the tutelage of Eli Jordan. who's his, his first mentor. And when he's 18, he rides his first really significant national stakes winner at Saratoga. That's in August of 1879. And a couple of weeks later, his mother, dies of colorectal cancer and she's she's 39 and to me you know there's this long uh sort of story that's told about him that that comes up first in his his obituary and it's it's told repeatedly ever after where people say oh well you know he starts his career as a jockey as isaac burns because that's his father's name but so the first winner he has is he's you know isaac burns but about a week later, he rides a second winner, and all of a sudden, he's Isaac Murphy. And the way this story is told is that he's he wants to honor his mother's father, who had been supposedly very supportive of his career as a jockey. Well, if you look at the records, you know, maybe. I don't know. But if you look at the records, by the time Isaac Murphy got on a horse for the first time, and we know when he got on a horse because he got real famous afterwards, so everybody was trying to remember, you know, the time it happened, and and he fell off, right? So it makes this sort of perfect story. And there is actually a lovely children's book about this and about him getting back on, which I recommend. Um, But by the time that happened, his grandfather was dead. Now, you know, I mean, I, I understand there, you know, there are plenty of kids who want to be athletes and they're, you know, it's entirely possible that they had conversations when he was six and seven and eight about how he was going to be a jockey and it was wonderful. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that didn't happen, but I'm also saying that to him, even though his mother is always sort of very studiously careful about how she uses her name, it seems to me impossible to believe that he wasn't also thinking about preserving her name. Right. Because he's her son. And he never talks about it. I mean, he never talks about her. And that's one of the things that I thought, well, that's their business. You know, I I don't know what it was like to be her son. I I don't know if she was demanding. I don't know if it, you know, if it felt like you were never going to live up to the expectations. I, I don't know. But I do know that she worked tremendously hard to make sure that he had a future and he had one and, and without her, I don't think that would have happened. And, you know, and, and I think that very much fits into this blossoming storytelling we have about what black women accomplished in that period. And, you know, and, and I think it's, you know, and, and what they, you know, and, and people have have pointed me to, you know, some of the, some of the literature about this, you know, and, and even the poetry about, you know, black women who, who, you know, who are basically saying, well, we didn't have any of these things. And because we didn't have them, we know that you have to have them. 
and that that's how you make freedom. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And how much does the story change when we're focusing upon Isaac Murphy's mother as sort of an inspiration and the importance of that versus his father? I mean, considering the records were there, right? You were able to sort of find them. But as you say, people sort of love to sort of throw him in with the importance of his father. How does it change our vantage point of of Isaac Murphy when we're looking at sort of the importance of his mother to him? Well, I think one of the things it does is it... Well, I think it does two things. It's sort of, I think it expands and maybe, maybe, it, maybe I'm thinking too much about this, but I would say it expands it from thinking of it as sort of like, you know, this sort of traditionally coded masculine thing where you're like, well, you know, here's the father who goes to war, goes to war and here's the son who becomes the sports hero, you know? And it sort of makes it a bigger story where it's like, actually, you know, it's not just that he's an athlete, though that is very important. And, and you know, I, that's one of the things I want people to take out of the out of the book is to say, well, if you want to know how black athletes are treated and understood and talked about in America, and if you're interested in that and you read this book, you're going to see all of that in the way, you know, this is the prehistory to everything you are seeing now that you could turn on the television now and, and you know, you will see basically an Isaac Murphy conversation on television. But that what it does is say, okay, no, this is actually about sort of a broader cultural issue, right? And so it makes it a more expansive story. And I think the other thing it does is it sort of changes the chronological focus. So if we talk about his dad, we're really talking about the war, right? So sort of the way you end up telling the story is to say, oh, well, okay, so the war changes everything right? And then there's freedom. And then suddenly Isaac Murphy can do this. And wow, this is amazing. And that isn't, that's true. You know, sure. I'm all for it. But if you talk about his mother, what you end up talking about is the messy stuff where you're like, okay, but the war's over. Okay. You know, and sorry, this is me sounding like I'm teaching because, you know, this is sort of where the book came from, right? It's like, it's like trying to teach students about this and say, okay, well, yeah. Okay. The 13th amendment says slavery's over. The 14th Amendment says equal protection of the laws. What does that mean? Right? Oh, sure. Right. You know, due process. Great. This is great. You know, we wrote it down on paper. Uh, Okay. In, in, if you're just trying to go to the grocery store, if you're trying to get your kid in a school, if you're trying to get a job, if you're trying to just go down the street, if you're trying to marry the person you love, you know, all these very basic things that people do in their real lives. What does the, what does the constitution have to do with that? Like, where does the constitution meet that? And his mother is the surviving parent who's sort of negotiating that right? Who's like, okay, well, how do I support my family? And, you know, and, and how are we going to have a future where my child has financial security and family security? And 
it really changes the focus from the war to reconstruction. And it makes us think about how reconstruction is actually the big engine of shaping how the future is going to look. And, um, you know, and as my students will tell you, I love reconstruction. So this is like very, you know, this is, this is a me, this is a me thing. Right. But I also think in terms of sort of how he lives his life, because he's clearly going through his life, trying to build what we would call generational wealth. And this is, I think, you know, it actually takes us back to a sort of athletics thing, right? Where this is a man who works for some of the richest people in the world. And he makes a lot of money, but he's trying to build generational wealth in one generation. And that's the difference that a lot of these men experience between themselves and their employers. And I think it's, you know, and in fact, if, you know, if you're following athletics today, it's very similar to what's, you know, going on there and sort of figuring out how to make sure your family is secure and your community is secure is such a, a difficult thing to do, even when you are making what for, for his time is, you know, respectable professional athlete money by our standards. Absolutely. And so thinking of sort of uh, Murphy being a jockey and sort of the uh, race racing itself, uh, you write that Murphy as a jockey had to master the sort of varying racial codes that govern different spaces within the racetrack. Uh, Can you give us some examples of these racial codes and how black jockeys like uh, Murphy actually navigated those? Well, even now the racetrack is sort of a weird space and it's one of the reasons it's such a remarkable space and one of the reasons it's really interesting to write about and i think one of the reasons sociologists for instance have have constantly looked at it is it's this place where all these people who are very different and occupy very different strata in society are in one place at one time and all looking at the same thing and that gives it this really interesting resonance, right? So now, for instance, immigration scholars are really interested in it because it's one of the places where Latinx folks are, are you know, to be found working in America and, and that, and, you know, side by side with, you know, Tom Brady or whatever, you know, I mean, p- various people wearing, you know, drinking very expensive bourbon and, and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and it's always sort of been like that. And that's what has always made it this, you know, sort of really extraordinary, strange place. And because strange, like a place to look at, you can really see stuff there because it's this little microcosm of every, again, everybody's in one place at one time. And so how do they interact? But it's also even within this, you know, we call it the track, you know, like it's okay. Like it's a blob, but there are these different places within the track, right? So there's the barn, right? Where the horses are and the area where the work's done, right? Where you're, I mean, you're shoveling manure, right? You're giving a horse a bath. The horse has wiped its nose on you, you know, that kind of thing where really dirty stuff is happening. And that space has always been the space of, you know, working class rural people who work with horses. And now it's often, you know, now it's working class folks now. Um, it's often women. It's, you know, it's immigrants. In those days, it was, again, immigrants um, and black folks. And in those spaces, right, even when the 
the guy, and in those days it's a guy, right? Um, who's ostensibly in charge shows up, right? The guy who's, who's the trainer, who's in charge of supervising the horses shows up. He's not probably doing the day-to-day care on those animals. So he's going to listen to the person who is, or the one who's, I mean, if he's good at his job, that's what he's going to do. So a lot of these guys, even though they're, you know, they're less educated, they're making less money, you know, they're in many ways not given any kind of social capital. In that space, they have it. They have knowledge, right? And knowledge is power, especially because often knowledge has to do with how much money you're going to make betting, right? So there's that extra resonance as well. But, you know, just the, and also horse care is incredibly specialized, right? Um, It's, you know, it's, it's one of those things about, you know, there is no unskilled labor. That's just a myth, right? All, all labor is skilled. And this is, and this is very skilled labor. And there's this premium put on that and an understanding of that in that space, right? So the, so the figure of authority may be a black man or, you know, maybe even a 14 year old boy. Right. Um, And then once you get out of the barn, and you're actually going to the track itself, right? And that's chronologically separated. So you're, you know, you're in the morning, just the people who work there are there. And then in the afternoon, right, you're going to open it to the public and people are going to race and, you know, it's going to be, you know, and it's it's party time. And that's when the crowd comes in. And the, you know, when the horse comes to the track, the, the groom is going to be there to take care of it. The jockey's going to be there to ride it. But then you're interacting with the crowd, you're interacting with the owner who pays the bill, right? And that means you still occupy a sort of different position, for instance, than if you were just a black member of the crowd, right? Which is often commented on. Um, So you have a certain status, but you don't have the same status you would have in the barn. Right. Because it's not necessarily that these people know your name, though they might, you know, if you're famous, um, they know you're special, but that doesn't mean you get to behave like you are worthy of respect often. Right. You have to be sort of studiously deferential because these are the people who, again, are paying the bills and usually people who are white and certainly people who have more money than you do. Uh, and the, sort of there's this sort of amazing moment uh in the that i found years ago that i had to put in the book because um it's this moment where murphy encounters this young man who is mad at him because uh i think he lost money right and and you know and he's and he's mad at him and he's yelling at him he's drunk and it's in a public space at the track it's in the paddock which is the preparation area before they go out on the track and you know, and when you think about it, it's this extraordinary moment, right? Because it's this, it's this wealthy white man who is yelling in the face of this black man in public. And, you know, it's 1884. So you're like, okay, I think I know how the power dynamic works here, right? But he's Isaac Murphy. So how does that change the power dynamic, right? And Murphy does not say anything to this guy. He just lets him yell. And, you know, okay, maybe that is about the power dynamic, right? There are certain things you cannot do. Even if you're Isaac Murphy, you can't say, shut up. You can't punch him. You can't, you know. Also, you know, I also think it's sort of like, it reminds me of the stories they used to tell about Duke Ellington letting racists yell at him when they were on tour and just being like, 
you know, you're beneath me. Like, I don't, I don't have to respond to you. Like, I am not going to let you take my dignity. And, and I think that's how, cause there's this cluster of black men who are watching it happen. They're grooms watching it happen. I mean, they're just glued. And I think that's how they experience it because Murphy and I, I don't know if it happened. And I, I, I believe that it did because the newspaper insisted that it did. And I want it to have happened. So this is how we're going to tell the story. Murphy looks the guy dead in the eye. He's holding a whip. Because he's, you know, he's at work. And there's a fly buzzing around. And he flicks that whip. And he cuts the fly in two. And then he keeps looking, you know, like, beat, beat, eye contact, walks off. And evidently, all those black men who are watching that interaction just cheer. Because to them, right, this is a man who has won. And you can say, well... Is it winning because it's clearly constrained? Maybe it's constrained, but also it is a magnificent assertion of I I could choose to interact with you, but I have such magnificent control of myself and you have so little, you are so small that I refuse to let you bring me down in that way. And it's published in major American newspapers. And so I kind of wonder like, how did white people take that story? They can't have taken it as like a great empowering thing or they wouldn't necessarily, you know, I mean, like, I think they just thought it was funny. And, but you know, you read it between the lines and you're like, no, I think this was a moment. Right. And, and if that's sort of the energy that that man carried with him, even in that space, you can see how, that kind of energy changes a space and potentially makes people think. And again, that's, that's a weight that Murphy carries with him when people begin to associate that with politics. Absolutely. And you do this great job throughout the, the work of sort of layering these perspectives of Murphy, of the way that different people sort of view him. So I wonder if you could tell us, um, what does Murphy sort of mean to the Black community and how do they sort of view him? And then also, I think, to sort of your last point there, how does the white community sort of conversely sort of view him as well? So I think, you know, like if you look at Black newspapers in this period, there, there's often a column down the down page two, and it's of all kinds of things that black people in America have done that week, you know, that are worthy of interest, right? So like people who graduated valedictorian, people who, who got a medical degree, people who did this and that. And Isaac Murphy is often in that column, right? And it's sort of this, um, so I think he, to a lot of black people, he is the epitome of black success. And I think he, he manages that in a really important way because you're sort of in this moment where, and, it, and it's going to be more this way, right? Into the, into the, you know, a little later where you get this divide, right? Where you get people who say, what, what's our best course politically? Is it to sort of put our heads down and say, no, we don't have to be equal, right? You, we are going to prove to you that we deserve to be equal and then you're going to do it. Right. Um, and I, and I guess people have come to associate that view with Booker T Washington. I don't, you know, whatever. Anyway. Um, and then there are people who say, no, you can't, you, you can't do that. Right. The, 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 
people in power are never going to suddenly say, oh, wait, we were wrong the whole time. You know, you gosh, you're you're really great. And, you, you know, um, and I think especially after 1883, which is when the Supreme Court says, you know, no, the Civil Rights Act is unconstitutional. You know, we can't possibly be bothered to, you know, guarantee the equal accommodation in public facilities. Why would we do that? That's so unfair. Um, you know, that the whole notion of saying, well, if we really prove we deserve this, you know, there's going to be this turnaround in public opinion and then in the law. And, and so there are all kinds of black leaders who are like, that's nonsense, you know, uh, and, and people like T. Thomas Fortune, who's sort of working on precursor national organizing to the NAACP, certainly, you know, see it that way. And they're like, no, you, you got to take it. You know, you, you can't, you can't wait for people to think you deserve it. You have to take it. And I think some of that also has to do with class, right? And and I think that's the extraordinary thing that Murphy's position really has. And it, it makes him sort of an interesting figure in terms of black celebrities at the time, because he's not famous for being educated, right? He's not famous for being political. He's not famous for being a speaker. Um, you know, and if you think about sort of other major black celebrities of the time, you know, a lot of them would fall into those categories and he's not any of those. Right. And so to me, Murphy's interesting because, you know, if, if you're, you know, if you're a formerly enslaved man in your twenties, you know, who, who grew up on a farm and now you have sort of an agricultural job, you know, and it could be in Alabama or it could be in Illinois or whatever. Um, and you look at Isaac Murphy, well, that's not as far from you, right? As somebody who has managed to go to, you know, one of the, uh, colleges that admits black students, you know, or, you know, this is, he does something that you understand, right? He works with animals in a way that you under, you know, you, you know, and, and there's this empathy, I think. And the other thing is, you know, there's, there's a sort of, um, there, there's a closeness that that's potentially absent elsewhere. And the other thing is, and this is what I think has always made athletics seductive in this way, right? Is that he, and certainly his friend, Peter Jackson, who's a, who's a boxer is in a similar position where, you know, when he goes and competes against white jockeys, which he does all the time, you know, he doesn't convince Snapper Garrison he deserves to win. And Snapper Garrison is like, oh, yes, you're, you're, you know, you've really, you're a great guy. And, you know, you go to it. He just beats the socks off of him. Right. And so I think, you know, and, and because he's, he's doing that, but he's also this like tremendously self-controlled, well-tailored, um, very taciturn guy. He sort of appeals to both sides of that debate in a way that's really important, right? Because people can point to him and say, you know, and look, look to their kids and say, look, and I think this is what he has in mind, that respectable parents can say, okay, we know he makes his living that way. We don't want you to make your living that way, right? Race, racetracks are creepy and they're full of people who are degenerate. But, you know, look at this man, look at how he dresses, look at how he comports himself, look at his wife who is beautifully dressed and very, you know, and clearly they are in this loving, monogamous, you know, respectable relationship. This is beautiful, right? This is, this is how we want you to be. And on the other side, the guys who are down at the bar who are betting, right, can say, look at that, you know, I could have done that, you know, and, and we're going to beat them all someday. You know, if, if you give us an opening, we can beat you. 
you know, or we can at least compete equally, which is certainly something, you know, Frederick Douglass is very into this. And this is one of the things he talks about. So I think he sort of brings together those two sides of the black community in a way that's, that's potentially powerful. And sort of later in his career, and I'm sure we're going to get to this in a second, right? Once he gets very, very famous, T. Thomas Fortune actually sort of adopts him as a civil rights icon, I think, for that reason. Um, And then white people, I think, have this sort of dual view of him. And one is, look, here's this black man who's very successful, and it's because he's doing it all right. You know, he's so... He's so quiet. He's so taciturn. He's so thoughtful. He's, you know, and, and it's so funny because the way they sort of throw the words around, you think, I don't think this word means what you think it means, you know? So they'll be like, oh yes, he never drinks. He never drinks anything. And then, you know, two weeks later, same newspaper. Well, you know, he was sitting there drinking a glass of wine and we were having this lovely conversation, you know, and you're like, okay, so you don't mean he never drinks. You just mean... I assume that you, like me, have coded understandings of what it means when black men drink, and I want you to know he's not like that, right? I mean, it's, and the same as smoking, they do it with smoking, Um, they do it with cursing, they insist he has never uttered a curse word, and I was like, I suppose it's possible, I don't know, I wasn't there, but let me tell you, I've been around horses, and I've been around horse people, and even extremely respectable religious people, when you get into a situation like that, things can happen, you know? Um, So... You know, there's there's this sort of constant effort to say, oh, no, no, he's he's the perfect um, successful black man, which means, by the way, that it's perfectly possible to be a successful black man. You just have to not rock the boat. Right. Look at him not rocking the boat. And and again, I think that must have been exhausting. I mean, I can't, you know, being very performatively not rocking the boat must have been a lot. Um and I mean, sometimes it's just outright ridiculous where they're like, well, you know, he never actually associates with other black people. And you're like, yes, I, I've actually read the society page in, in the Lexington paper. And like, the man has a very extensive social circle. <laughs> like, he's in fact one of the preeminent party givers in Lexington and in, you know, a large part of the Midwest, and it's black horsemen and black doctors and black lawyers and black pharmacists and black political activists, and basically everybody who's running the anti-segregation campaigns in the early 1890s in central Kentucky is at Isaac Murphy's house, you know, and I somehow think they were probably talking about segregation, and I don't think they liked it, you know, and so, you know, there's this constant need that I think amounts to sort of willful self-delusion that they're like oh no 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 because we like him so surely he's not like this right and then i think when it becomes sort of too difficult to maintain that and that happens in part i think because he becomes so famous and because black activists really do explicitly take him up as a sort of figure who who proves the possibility of a black success and sort of pushes that into a political arena explicitly, right? So that white people can no longer be like, oh yeah, totally separate things, right? Sports and politics, totally separate things, not not a problem, right? And, you know, that they begin, I think, to sort of realize like, you know, one of the things that's really interesting is, for instance, that his friend Peter Jackson, who's a boxer, and we, I think we associate boxing because of the later history with sort of a more explicit political um, 
you know, that, that people understand that as a sort of a more, more political space because they say, well, look, you know, like Jack Johnson beating up on a white guy in the early part of the 20th century is explicitly a political thing and people respond to it politically. Well, the really interesting thing is that Peter Jackson comes to the United States from Australia to fight for a heavyweight title. And he has real difficulty getting white boxers to fight him. They won't fight him. I mean, that's after he, um, you know, uh, I think fights one of the prominent fighters of the day to a 61 round draw. So you can also see why they were suddenly like, Oh wait, no, I reasons. (laughs) I can't do this. Um, But he complains and he says, look, why aren't other sports like racing? Why, you know, why isn't every, you know, this is the, surely the model should be equal competition. And I thought, well, okay, it's not just the idea of a black man in athletic competition. It's the fact that this particular black man in this particular sport is being held up as here's the model for all equal competition. Like when Frederick Douglass talks about a fair field and no favor, maybe this is what he's talking about, you know, and then T Thomas fortune is going to put him on the front page of the biggest black newspaper in America and say, this is the model for what we want, right? This is the kind of determination. This is the kind of success. This is the kind of man who is going to lead as a symbol, right? I mean, nobody ever, Murphy himself never says anything political, but these people take him up as a, as a symbol and a sort of a, a, a proof of concept kind of. And once that happens, it's fascinating how quickly a lot of very prominent white people are like, yikes, right? Um, and it, it happens, I think, you know, it, in some ways it's very quick, and in other ways, it's not. Um, and in so basically what happens is he's he goes in the summer of 1890. It's probably your next question. Uh, he, he goes he goes in the summer of 1890 from this, you know, he wins a Kentucky Derby in the spring of 1890. He's going to go on and win. Uh, he's got this incredible run in New York, which in the 1890s is, is the, uh, you know, the, the most prestigious place in American racing. Um he's going to be on the front page in every newspaper in America. Right. I mean, this is, this is real. I mean, the man has been, I would say at the top of the most famous sport in the country for 10 years at this point, but this is it, right? This is, this is the, the apex. And about two weeks after all this, and after they have had an immense party hosted by several of the most prominent uh, people in New York, who are of course also like, some of the wealthiest people nationally who happen to hang out in New York, right? So uh, at this point, he's working for uh, James Benali Hagen, who is the financial mind behind Anaconda Copper, which basically means that James Benali Hagen is controlling a good part of the world economy. Um, and if you look at the pictures of this party, it's, I mean, you know, I, it, surely if you were like a gossip columnist in 19th century in New York, you know, you could point out the guy with a beard in the three-piece suit and you, oh, that guy and that, you know, very, very famous wealthy people. And there's one black man in the picture. Actually, there are a few black men in the picture. A few of them are standing back because they're waitstaff. And there's one black man sitting down at the head table, and that's Isaac Murphy. And... I actually gave an interview to somebody who was like, oh, you said he's in the picture. Where is he? And I was like, he's, he's sitting at the table. And uh, it was a, um, and she said, whoa, 
1890. And I said, yeah, exactly. Right. This is, he's sitting there with like, you didn't even know to look for him there in 1890. And yet there he is. And that's such a big deal that like the New York times covers this party. I mean, the party is as big a deal because the party is a marker, right. Of sort of, Oh, like you're not just celebrating what he accomplished. You're inviting him to the party. Right. And I think that's, that's when we're talking about space, right. That's, that's one of those markers where it's like, Oh wait, now you can come in the space. And that's a huge deal. And about two weeks later, he is riding uh, another very important race and he falls off and he's clearly not himself. I mean, he is, he is physically messed up. He's dazed. He doesn't seem to understand where he is. Um, he's not capable of sort of doing the basic physical motions of riding. And they, um, the disciplinary people at the track say, well, okay, we have to have some kind of hearing about what the heck's going on. And, Essentially what happens is they conclude that his weight situation has caught up with him and he's been trying to lose weight. Um, and at this point the man is, you know, he's, he's about 30 years old and, and anybody's metabolism is slowing down at this point. His is wrecked. Um, he's trying to weigh less than he's basically ever weighed um, since he was a kid because he wants to do some, uh, he wants to ride some races that require that. Um, so he basically hasn't had anything to eat for two days before he rides. And then he had actually, um, he drank some milk punch and I looked it up. This is very odd, but 19th century medicine actually sort of casually said that the combination of dairy and alcohol was a stimulant. So it was sort of the equivalent of pounding Red Bull. Right. Being like, I can't eat anything. Right. I'm I, I feel horrible, which he did. He felt horrible all the time, particularly that year. And you can tell that's because, you know, his body is just really unable. to. So basically what he's doing at most race meetings is he's just lying down flat in a dark room until he literally has to get up on a twelve hundred pound racehorse and ride it at speed. Right. And that's what he's been doing to himself. And so basically what he thinks he's doing is like chugging energy drinks. And so he does this. And of course, what happens when you haven't eaten anything and you put alcohol in your stomach, right? I mean, it's, it's very predictable as well as whatever consequences he's probably dealing with from long-term dehydration from whatever's, you know, I mean, it's hard to diagnose clinically, but I mean, you know, the, the symptoms all sound very predictable and people sort of understood this, right? So, so the, the disciplinary people were like, okay, we get it. Like, we think this is probably what happened. We understand it. Um, you know, that this was not good. I mean, and you did have alcohol in your stomach before you, you know, I mean, you, by your own admission, you, you drank before you did this, this very, you know, serious situation. And so we're going to suspend you for, um, you know, a significant period of time. But Nobody ever said, oh, you know, you're a bad person or you're beyond the scope of what, you know, is going on fairly typically professionally, because that was something that happened to jockeys, right? Because they're using alcohol as a stimulant. And I think he found that emotionally devastating because it was a judgment by his peers. Even if they said they understood what he had done, they had still judged it. And for somebody who was that invested in his own respectability. I think it was emotionally really difficult. And then you put that on top of the physical state he was in, which was really bad. 
the thing that's really remarkable is that, and this is, I think, where you can really see the shift that comes after sort of his status as a civil rights figure changes is the newspapers. And again, you know, thank goodness for databases because you can do the keyword searches and you can see, right, that, you know, before this, people knew this happened, right? And they were like, oh, yeah, that's a thing, you know, and, and it was sort of like now if you don't understand, right, that football players are often on painkiller, like, and it, and the way people sort of handle that as being like, well, if you don't understand that, it's just that you're not following closely enough. You don't understand that like people skirt the rules and their reasons for that. And it has to do with how the game works and like, Hey, that's no good, but what you going to do, you know, kind of vibe. And that was always how it was treated both for him and for other people when it occasionally happened. Right. Because I mean, this is a man who is so buttoned up and so, you know, and so when he is a little looser, you know, people are like, Oh, okay. You've, you've had a little bit to drink, but they all, but they know why they, why it is, and that's how they treat it. Kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Well, all of a sudden, he's a drunk, and it's disgusting, and he should be fired. And we can't believe that you know respectable people could ever, ever you know ever have anything to do with it. And it's it's. I was trying to figure out, okay, what happened, right? Why, why all of a sudden? And I think the timing is just too close, right? It's, you know, it's literally, it's less than a month, right? After he's sort of, he's, he's really made, he's made his way into the mainstream, right? He's been christened by one of the major African-American activists of the time as a symbol of activism. And there's this moment in one newspaper that I thought, oh, okay, you're kind of showing me this little piece here where it's a Buffalo newspaper, I believe, by the way, it's not from the South. So, I mean, this is an important, it's important to note it's a national, you know, this is, this is not a story necessarily about the South. This is about all the United States um, where they say, oh, well, you know, you know, that elections bill in Congress and the elections bill is the Lodge federal elections bill, which is about trying to have federal supervision of elections where African-American votes are being suppressed. It's, well, you know, Murphy probably doesn't care about that. And I thought, okay, sir, then why? You know, I mean, it's an article about Murphy. And then all of a sudden, the large federal elections bill comes, you know, has a cameo. And I was like, why did you bring it up then? And I mean, I'm sure, you know, it's sort of basic, but I thought, okay, but what does that tell me about what neuron in your brain connects to another neuron in your brain? And what that tells me is Isaac Murphy and the large federal elections bill now have a now are connected neurons in your brain and you don't like that. And so you're telling yourself, he doesn't care, right? It's, they're totally different. Politics and sports are totally different. Everybody can stand their lane. It's no big deal, but just, you know, but you should know Isaac Murphy is a drunk. And I thought, oh, okay. Maybe, maybe this tells me something about what's happening here. And that, you know, I mean, he continues to have a, a, you know, successful career, I would say, for about two or three years after that. Um, but he is never at the height of his powers again. And some of that is physical, right? Because he really does have a tremendous physical breakdown. And some of it is emotional because it's so, you know, he feels so judged. But some of it is also because he loses the opportunities. And he does not have the opportunities to continue in the profession, I think, precisely because of that sort of that political edge that he suddenly perceived to have. 
And so we talked a little bit about this before we hit record, but could you talk to the audience a little bit about how uh, education, how teaching uh, sort of helped you with sort of the organization of this book and the work that you did and sort of how, how important it is to have those sort of two working together in this way? I could not have written this book uh, if I were not teaching full-time. Uh, the difference between my first book and this book is the difference of somebody who is is thinking constantly about how to make this period of history matter to students. Because uh, one of the complaints that I had when I learned this history and the complaints that my students have when they come to me is they say, well, I guess I, under you know, I understand why it's important, but it's boring. And it's boring because it's so complicated. You know, too many people are doing too many different things. You know, the federal government is doing this, that, and the other, and they're all kind of named the same thing. And, you know, and it's the, it, what's the difference between the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and the Civil Rights Act of 1875 and the blah, 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 you know. And so I, you know, here I am thinking, OK, how do you make people understand the world you live in is the world that was created by Reconstruction? Right. And so you should know about this. Right. This is really important. And thinking about how to teach that and how to convey that is, I think, the story of explaining to people like, okay, you have been taught what happened when they changed stuff on paper, right? And like, you have been taught, okay, in this year, they ratified the 14th Amendment, and the 14th Amendment says, blah, 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 right? And that's not the end, that's the beginning. Because then you have to tell the story about how all kinds of people knew at the time that that was the beginning of the contest to be like, okay, what does equality mean? What does freedom actually mean? And the number of people who were so significant in that debate because they said, no, I know what it is because I've been denied it. It is the opposite of my previous life. And how they very carefully went about saying, okay, how do we make a world that's different? And that's the story that's important. That's the story that's interesting. That's the story that kids want to know because it has relevance to their lives, right? And so when I sat down to write this book, I was like, I mean, I think because I was a person who was thinking in those terms, that was the story that I ended up telling, right? Because it's a story about a man whose life is only possible because of those debates, right? It's only possible because people are doing that work. And he lives in a time and in a place where he's constantly surrounded by people who are having these, having these conversations, right? I mean, when he has a dinner party, right? He's surrounded by people who are talking about what it's going to be like if train travel is segregated, right? This is a man who travels on the train all the time for work. His best friend ends up suing the railroad to try to stop train segregation, right? And so thinking about this man who kind of without meaning to ends up sort of on the front lines of sort of this debate, even though I think in general, he would have preferred not to be there, right? Because it's not that he didn't believe in all that stuff because he did, I think. I mean, I, I, well, if he didn't believe in integration and civil rights, he was the only man in his own house at his own parties who didn't, right? Everybody else is very political, right? And, but I think he was not necessarily a person who was, you know, he's not by nature a talker. He's not by nature a, a public speaker. He's not... You know, and so I don't think he would have chosen to be an activist, but he sort of, but he became a symbol of activism and sort of, you know, 
so talking about not just sort of the work that's being done, but also how people understand the work that's being done. And which is also sort of a way of saying, how do people imagine what America is? If they imagine America as a place where somebody like Isaac Murphy is a hero, or do they not? Right? That's what made the that's what made the story so important for me, right? And that's why I think it's an important story to tell. And that's, you know, part of what I hope people get out of it. Absolutely. Um, and so what sort of audience did you imagine for this work? Well, again, I, I think it's really interesting in the last, you know, 10 years as I've taught reconstruction, I have more and more students who were like, yeah, tell me more. And I'm like, good. Okay. You know, the, so I feel like there's this public appetite for like people who are like, I want to know about this period of history, but I want to learn about it in a way that's not boring and that makes it feel relevant to me. Right. So I hope that people who are interested in that, you know, are and really kind of want to get a nitty gritty like version of, okay, this is what's happening and this is how it affects people. Like, I would like people to really come to the book for that. If you're interested in the history of African Americans in sports, which I 100 percent am. Right. It's one of my major interests, um, both as a scholar and, you know, just as a sports fan. uh, I think you're going to get I think there's a lot to be taken uh in, in that vein from the book, uh, again, because I think, you know, like sometimes when you read stuff about Murphy, you're like, wait, am I reading a comment section on Bleacher Report? Like, wait, I don't, you know, the way people are, you know, talk about the way he handles his money, the way they're constantly gossiping about him. Right. I mean, this is so completely, you know, and there is a sort of like, you know, Hey, LeBron James, stay in your lane, you know, vibe that you, you get constantly. Um, so I think if you're interested in that and you, you know, you want to sort of think about the prehistory of that and how long sort of the same debates have been going on, it's right here. Um, and I also think, you know, if you're just like me and you're sort of interested in like weird parts of American history that you kind of didn't know about before, there's a lot of that here, right? Like the man knew a lot of people in 19th century America. Like he he knew everybody. <laughs> it's it's kind of wild. And, you know, sort of the the side characters in this story and sort of the the details of like what sports is like in 19th century America. Like it's you know, it's it's actually just a really good story. I mean, in part because he was really good at his job and his job was really exciting. So, you know, I hope there's that as well. Absolutely. It's it's a very good story. And I think you do a very, very good job with it throughout this. So I can wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, and I know, Dr. Millie, we've taken up a lot of your time. And thank you for being so generous with your time. Um, but I'll ask sort of one final question now. Uh, what are you working on now? Well, um, as one of my students said uh, years ago, she was like, ah, yes, you've written a boy book. And I was like, yep, that's what it is. <laughs> And, you know, what she meant was, like, it's a book about all these guys hanging out together. And, like, part of the vibe is that they're all guys hanging out together. And part of the reason this space works the way it does is that it is assumed to be an all-male space, right? So we were kind of having a conversation with that. And and I've always thought about that. Um, and one of the things that, that sort of stuck with me is um, the way that... You know, and, you know, that then sort of got tied up with, um, especially as my friends started to have kids, with the whole notion of the horse girl and how 
you know, what that means to young women and who has access to that as an identity and like how it then gets translated when women get older. And that sort of got, you know, just sort of moving through these communities, meeting people as I, as I, you know, sort of have written these books and really thinking about how women's relationship to horses is a matter of like constant public interest. Like there's an average of like three memoirs a year that are like, you know, my life came apart and then I, you know, met this horse or whatever, you know, are like, you know, there's a lot of sort of chicken soup for the soul stuff. There's a lot going on there. And like, as somebody who's interested in sort of popular culture, inequality, the way identity works, um, that's sort of my next little mini project. Um, though what I found the first time I wrote about black jockeys is that once you start writing and once people know that you're kind of a repository for these stories, they will find you. Um, and one of the best parts of having written these books is the families of people who are related to these remarkable men, you know, who are looking for somebody to like help them, you know, contextualize those stories, honor those stories. Um, you know, like the the greatest race of, you know, 19th century America is probably the great post stakes of the 1850s in New Orleans. And I have now been in contact with descendants of both the enslaved trainer and the enslaved jockey. Right. I mean, that's wild that that history is still alive and that those families want to preserve it. And to me, that is just such a, a, a thing of hope. Right. And so to the degree that I can play a role in that, I think I'm going to keep doing that. And that's always going to be a project that I have. And it's just such a blessing to be able to use like the weird little set of skills that I happen to acquire uh, to do that. That is wonderful and so well said. Um, and it sounds like a, a wonderful project, honestly. Um, and it's sort of a continuing project as well. Um, well, Dr. Catherine Millie, I want to thank you again for being on the show today. It was a great conversation. It's a wonderful book. Um, I really enjoyed our chat, and I hope you take care. Thank you so much. You too. <laughs>